Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise will become wise. I'm Dan Chapa, and Turton Fan and I have been friends for many years, and we've learned a lot from each other, including how to debate opposing views while loving the person. We share a foundation in the essentials of the Christian faith in a love of God in His Word. Here we'll dive deep into the Bible and present both Calvinism and Arminianism and the precise points of disconcurrence. Hopefully the contrast will bring you clarity. Welcome to Disconcurring Theo Amigos. Hello. Um, welcome back to Disconcurring Theo Amigos. And today we have a very special guest, um, one of the elite members that are actually watching the channel on a regular basis, uh, David Lewis. Um, hi, David. How are you doing? Hey, good. Good. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing real well. Yeah, yeah. I ha I have to say, um, I I've been wanting to ask you if you need a marketing person, a PR person to get your subscribers up. But I think you guys are probably doing what I've been doing, and I'm trying to avoid the trap of let's um, market our stuff so uh, we can get everybody to to watch it. So I yeah, I I can be on the ground floor of the fan base here. I can say I was there when. <laughs> Dan and Turret and Fan first started. Yeah, we've been having a lot of fun with the channel and the discussions. I guess, um, yeah, I don't have a marketing background, so maybe it's not not my strong point. I mean, I don't know. I'd probably get a Twitter account or something like that. <laughs> you know, things like that <laughs> might might help, right? Um, yeah. But but we uh, but we've been we've been enjoying it, and hopefully, uh, there's people out there that have been enjoying the deep dives into scripture, which is what, what we prefer to do. Yeah. When I first, you know, when I first, I forget how I even found out about you guys, but, uh, you know, Turton fan, I've been following since, oh man, at least since seminary, that was probably like, oh eight. Um, and I've been following his blog and we interacted on Dr. James White's chat channel back and forth, uh, years and years ago. So, um, I've been familiar with him and then Dan, we just met not too long ago. So yeah, I, I'm, it's cool to be on here. I'm, I'm kind of starstruck by turret and fan. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so actually Dave, can you tell us maybe a little bit about yourself, your church background, um, that, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm 39 years old, married for 17 years, have four adopted children ranging from 14 to 18 years old. Um, so we're, to, we're at an interesting phase. Um, my day job is I'm the executive director of Adult and Teen Challenge, which is a Christian discipleship drug and alcohol treatment facility. Um, so I manage a facility with 50-some uh, men in there who are recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. And so uh, that's always kept me... I can learn theology all day, but then I have to take it back to the ground level and say, how will this help a heroin addict who needs to come to know Christ and fight their sin? So that's always kept me grounded. Um, church background, um, I'm kind of a, a mutt. Um, so I got saved in the Assemblies of God tradition, and then slowly but surely came to Calvinism. Uh, my friends of mine who had a Calvinism experience and were converted and 
say they weren't even born again until they became Calvinists, and now they think I'm not saved. That's a long story. Um, but And then I found my way to the Anglican tradition, and I almost got ordained as an Anglican priest. Uh, my seminary education is from Trinity School for Ministry, which is an Anglican seminary. And then I found my way to the Reformed Baptist tradition. So I am actually ordained as an elder in Reformed Baptist Church. Um, but currently I attend a Arminian church. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- this is a funny story. I think uh, you guys will appreciate this. My pastor, we had breakfast. This was probably two years into me going to the church. And he knows I'm a Calvinist. And he actually lets me preach, which is interesting. I preach at a non-Calvinist church. And he said, you're the first Calvinist I've ever met that isn't angry all the time. (laughs) So I don't know what that says about (laughs) Calvinists. But uh, I was like, amen. (laughs) And then my wife would say, he doesn't know you as well as I do. But anyway. (laughs) So yeah, uh, uh, any so yeah long story short so i've kind of settled into uh you know being a reformed baptist although you know i'm not dogmatic about baptismal views to be honest with you i have plenty of really good friends who are presbyterians in the area um and yeah that's and then i you know i have a little channel called apologetics from the attic that i started about a year and four months ago to dip my toe into the online apologetics world which is a interesting universe compared to reality but that's another story sure well uh well thanks for joining uh, for this discussion and i guess uh the plan was to go through second peter chapter three i'm sure we'll especially look at second peter three nine which often comes up in calvinist arminian discussions so um with that said actually i'll be happy to take the lead and dive in into this passage and I'll, I won't start with uh, verse 3. We'll start with Second uh, Peter 3, 1. But I wanted to ask um, both of you guys actually beforehand, because Second uh, Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack uh, concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So my first question for you guys would be um, how you guys take it overall in the sense of... Um, some Calvinists, I think, go into the two wills of God and see some type of desire for God to save everyone and preach the gospel to everyone um, and that sort of thing. And then other Calvinists take this as a more restrictive sense, probably looking at uh, the uh, long-suffering to us-word, the us-word being just the church, and so this is limited to just the church and um, doesn't mean each and every person that was alive when Peter was writing this. So overall, because this will help me calibrate some of my arguments, I, I suppose, um, how do you take the passage? Um, maybe Chert and Finn, you want to start us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, in terms of just verse 9, the us word... I view as um, a reference to the elect, of which uh, you know not all at the time that Peter wrote this even had been born, and so I would I would interpret this as saying uh, when it says it is long suffering to us, we're not willing that any uh, I would view that as any of us should perish, but that all, meaning all of us 
should come to repentance. And the, you know, I would interpret it uh, in view of Matthew 13. That, that would be my, um, what I'd see as kind of a background uh, parable for it. Okay, Matthew 13, interesting. Okay, and how about yourself, Dave? Uh, David, uh, how do you take Yeah. Yeah, so I, I agree with, I, I would agree with Turton Fan on verse 9. And then I think that, you know, there's two issues always, right, with, with, with these texts. There's the exegetical, right, walking through the text verse by verse and looking at the grammar and the, you know, syntax and, and, and trying to properly understand the meaning of the author. And then there's also the theological issues, right? So I think the issue you're bringing up, like John Piper, for example, wrote a whole book arguing for that view that God desires to save the non-elect, but has decreed to, in fact, not save them. Um, that's the theological issue. So when it says not willing, um, so, and this is, would be my question for you, Dan, as you're going through it. Like I, I've always had an issue with how is it that God can want something to happen, but it not actually happen in reality. So, you know, from a Calvinist perspective, it's like, how can God want to save everyone, but in fact, not everyone is saved and then we get into the discussion, is free will the rock that's too heavy for God to lift, so to speak, that prevents uh, him from accomplishing his desires? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So that's more the theological issue. You know, like if God has a will, but it's frustrated, that may be a loaded term right there, that God's frustrated. But you know what I mean? Like that's the, that's kind of that, that, that's where I'm coming at it. I think that's what you were getting at, right? There's some Calvinists that would say God wants everyone to be, wants the reprobate to be saved, but he's in fact decreed that they wouldn't be but yet he still has a genuine desire to save them right, right. like that right. issue right yeah and i'd be happy to yeah, and thank you actually thank you for giving me that overview because that, like i said that that helps me focus um my, uh, my the set of arguments that i'll bring out because uh i will just concur on that point i think this passage is talking about every person at least a lot uh during the time of peter's writing um but we can get there uh, the right way, which is we'll follow the context. So I'll start up with uh, with verse one. I think we can move fairly quickly through the amount of context. I suspect we're going to agree a lot. Um, okay, so for starters, just the overview. You know, this is um, Second Peter, so it's it's written by the Apostle Peter. Um, even that can be a controversial statement. A lot of people, a lot of um, scholars look at the Greek and they just say, "Oh, it's so different than First uh, Peter." But I think that view that this wasn't Peter writing it almost gets put to rest on this verse because it says this second epistle beloved I now write to you uh, in both which I stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance it is claiming to be Peter's second letter and if it's not it's wrong. Now, I have zero problem with the idea that Peter had somebody helping him, and maybe he had two different people helping him. One person helped him with First Peter, and then the second person helped him with Second Peter. We see that in the letters of Paul that he used. Um, um, well, I forgot the word, but it's a, it's like the hand, the man. Uh, Amenuensis. Amenuensis. Thank you. Um, so, you know, there's no problem with that idea that uh, that Peter had two different people helping him. Um, but I, I, I think this is a pretty clear statement that it, it's um, Peter writing it. He is writing it to, to the dispersed churches. Um, 
a lot of people, a lot of commentaries will say this was near the end of his life. I don't know how to prove that, um, but I, I could take that as almost a given um, as Peter was uh, approaching martyrdom um, for his faith. Um, the uh, the pure uh, in verse one it talks about that he stirs up a pure mind. Um, I think different translations have that in a slightly different way. Uh, here, I'll pull up the ESV just for a second, um, just so we can see. Um, uh, a sincere mind. It's a roughly the same concept, but basically, it's um, a, a, a mind that's in, in the faith and uh, thinking through things the in a holy way. Um, so uh, Peter is writing this. Um, that ye be, may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commands uh, of us and the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Um, so this is a difficult question as to why exactly the language of Second Peter chapter 3 is almost identical to that of Jude. Um, in several cases it is, and this seems to come, like, it seems to match Jude 17. Here, I'll pull it up real quick. Um, um, so, uh, but beloved, remember ye the words that were spoken before the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I have no problem with the idea that both Peter and Jude maybe worked from the same source material when they were putting this together. Maybe Peter had this in front of him. Maybe Peter had Jude in front of him. Maybe Jude had Second Peter in front of him. It could be any of those things. Um, I don't think it takes it, it detracts one single iota from inspiration and the trustworthiness, but they, um, they, there is a lot of parallel between Second Peter three and uh, and Jude. Um, let's see, um, in verse three, knowing that first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking according to their own lusts. Okay, so the, the these the last days, um, what we have to understand is for. Um, people in this time, there was some concern that maybe Jesus had, a, even with Paul, it's, Jesus has already returned and we just missed it. Um, or now Peter is indicating um, some people are um, mockers and saying, you know, why is he taking so long for the, the second coming to come? And that's hard for us to comprehend because, you know, we're 2,000 years away from, from the event. Um, but that was the case at, at this time, and Peter is going to address, well, why is Jesus taking so long to for his second return? Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there. Um, anything I said so far, um, does, does that work for you guys? Any, any thoughts to add, um, or should I just keep rolling? Yeah, um, I just remember in seminary, one of the professors... I think he talked about he thought Jude was a a commentary on Second Peter or a midrash. I, I think I remember him using it was they're they're definitely connected. A lot of scholars see the connection um, between Jude and Second Peter. That's that is a very common thing that the commentaries will talk about. That's the only thing I'd sure. and everything else I agree with. Okay. Um, Turd fan, should I just uh, keep rolling or? Yeah, we can keep rolling. Okay. Uh, thank you. All right. Um, verses four. So, and saying, so this is the scoffers, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens of old, and earth standing out of the, uh, out of the water and in the water, um, uh, whereby the world, world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Um, but the heavens and earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire, unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Um, so there's, uh, Peter is, is setting up a parallel here um, between the previous destruction of the world and the upcoming destruction of the world. And the previous destruction of the world is um, in the days of Noah, and the flood came, and it destroyed uh, planet Earth, except for Noah and the eight uh, eight people. Um, And he's saying, basically, this is a similar situation. And he goes back and forth. So it starts with the world was created, and we see that in the Genesis 1 account, that the world was covered by water, and then God divided the waters. And then um, then he takes that and springs into the Noah and the flood account. And he's using this as evidence that they are wrong when they say that, you know, all things continue as they were from the creation of the world. Well, the world was first covered with water, then the lands were separated, and then uh, God ended up destroying um, people through the flood. So it's not true that everything continues um as 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 it as it was um and there's some interesting uh parallels that i thought would be especially important to bring out here um second uh first peter three twenty was one of them and then second peter four seven because um this fits in so let's go back to sec uh first peter did you say oh, i'm sorry okay i misheard you go ahead okay no 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 worries um uh so this is first peter three i guess i'll um in verse 20, uh, which sometimes were disobedient, um, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared within it, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Right, so this is a very similar idea that he's putting, uh, that Peter is putting out, and it's the idea that, um, so Noah was preaching for, I think, 500 120 years. 120 years. Sorry. Thank you. So 120 years. He was preaching for 120 years. And why was God waiting that long? He was being long-suffering with those that were disobedient. And God was waiting or being patient um, with them while the ark was being prepared. Um, and then, so I think I think that gives some good background. But actually, so does Second Peter um, chapter 2. And I thought this was really helpful also. Second Peter 2, 4 through 7. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down from hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah and the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those who should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with um, filthy conversation of the wicked, for... Um, uh, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in, in and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from the 
day to day with their unlawful deeds, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. All right, and so here's where I thought that that was highly relevant. It's the idea of that God is going to deliver his people through trials, but he is going to preserve and be patient with everyone else approaching these trials. So both things are in view, that he, he uh, God is, knows how to protect and keep his people through trials, but he also is being patient with those that are about to experience those trials while the trials are coming. Um, and I, so, okay, I guess uh, I'll, I'll pause there. Um, does, do you guys agree with that so far, the parallel between Noah and the destruction through water and the destruction via fire that's coming up? Um, uh, Turton fan, maybe, um, what do you, what do you think? Is that, uh, any pushback so far? I guess I think it's worth, I, first of all, I definitely agree with your, 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 your first point that the books are by the same author, even though the style is different and that, you know, we can ascribe that to perhaps Peter personally writing one and Sylvanus writing the other one, uh, or whoever his uh, amanuensis was, I think I think it was Sylvanus, but I could be mistaken. In any event, I, regardless, I so therefore I do think that it's useful to look at First Peter to get an understanding of Peter's view of Noah, Peter's the way that Peter sees Noah and, and the flood. I I'm not sure to what extent the the symbol. You know, to what extent those exactly map over? So there will be some similarities and some differences between, uh, you know, between how the flood, for example, might be referenced in one place versus another place. But I, I definitely think it's worth looking at those, and I, you know, I appreciate that point. So when you say parallel, I would fall. I don't know if I would go that far as to say these are parallel, except that they're also talking about the same flood theme. In, in those places. And I, I do agree that it's the same flood that they have in mind, the same, you know, cataclysm they have in mind, and the same historical event. But I, as far as them being parallels as such, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure that's something to, to debate necessarily, although maybe it will come out as you're, you know, as you proceed. I suspect it might. Um, let me, let me see if I can put a point to it. The idea that, God can protect his people through a trial and that the patience, although it applies to his people, it also applies and it's more specifically for um, those that are about to experience that coming judgment. Those two mm-hmm. ideas. So let's start, let's start with the first idea, the, that God is going to protect his people through trials. Um, here, let, let me back up to, to chapter two real quick. Because I, I think, I think potentially we would we might have a point of disconcurrence here, and I, potentially it's a big deal. So Second uh, Peter two nine, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, uh, temptations and reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. Right, that's a big key to me to 
stay. I want to. I want to kind of follow that idea that that Peter is laying out in this letter, and use that to help interpret where he's going with in chapter three with the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. So, do you? Would you would you want a a little bit of a cleaner break between chapter two and three on that specific point, or, um, yeah, I guess what are your thoughts? Well, I I can say so. So just so I'm understanding your point. So your your first Peter point is it's a parallel because it's talking about God was patient, leading up to the flood, right? So there's ungodly people who up to the point of the flood they could have repented and got onto the ark with Noah but they just chose not to respond to God's I guess that's why I want a little yeah. more clarity on, on is that the parallel you're going for like God was in the same way in 2 Peter 3 9 God's willing that all should come to salvation in the same way God was willing that more people responded to the preaching of Noah, maybe. Right. So I would say that on the on the first Peter three twenty and the, the idea of Noah in general preaching for the one hundred twenty years, that why did it take so long? It gave people an opportunity to listen to Noah's preaching and repent. And more specifically, very specifically, I guess in the weeds a little bit, um, um, that it is the disobedient that God is long-suffering with, or at least they're a part of those that God is long-suffering with in 1 Peter 3.20. Ah, I see where you're going with this. And yeah, I, we are going to have a big disagreement about this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, because Dan, this this to me, so this, um, this is where I think that Genesis 6.5 and what God is saying about the state of humanity after the fall becomes very definitive for me because that's the text that says God looked down and saw the thoughts of the hearts of humans was only evil continually. And then it says Noah found favor. Um, and, you know, so that, that's the one thing. And then the other thing I want to say is in, in first Peter three and in second Peter two, and this is, definitive for me on interpreting this the shifting of the pronouns from third person to second person throughout all of these texts so like for example in first peter 3 right peter's saying when he's speaking about the people who god waited patiently for it's they right and then it switches to you beloved and then this, you know I, I just noticed that in second peter as you're pointing it out too it's the same thing um, and then Second Peter three, the shift between you and they, you and they, how Peter is talking about two different groups, the the beloved ones, the elect, and then these this other group, right, the scoffers, or the disobedient during sure. Noah's time. So I think that's sure that's always been definitive to me exegetically, like the switching between two groups that Peter clearly has in mind: the elect, those who he's writing to. And then the the well, I don't want to say non-elect, but the the ones who are unbelieving, right? So scoffer, yeah, scoffing. So okay, and we will definitely dive into that. I'm happy to, but actually, just 
to capture a point you made from Genesis chapter 6, I thought this might help. Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Right. And I think there is this idea of patience here. He's going to be patient with them for 120 years, but then destroy them. Right. And I think it's very possible that, you know, that's part of where Peter's coming from. In terms of the first Peter reference, okay, so maybe we're going to have to uh, um, concur to disconcur on these things, but can, I think... Can I, can I briefly explain what, where I think, uh, I, where I think a disconnect is before, because I don't know if I, sta- I think I said I disagree, but I don't know if I explained why. Sure, go right ahead. When you hear he was long-suffering, once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah in first Peter three twenty, okay. it seems to me like you're uh, suggesting that this was a time that was designed to allow the repentance of the people, uh, anyone else besides these eight that eventually were saved. But my question for you would be, and it's a rhetorical question. What would have happened if at year 60, the flood had come? In the answer to that rhetorical question is that zero people would have been saved if it had come at 60 years. Why? Because the ark wasn't finished. It took 120 years to build the ark. And so if God hadn't waited, everyone would have perished. So the the long suffering of God was really uh, not because God was holding out hope that maybe Melchizedek, or or, uh, not Melchizedek, uh, Methuselah, that maybe Methuselah would repent and believe during this 120 years. He died around the same year as the flood. We don't know in the flood or before the flood. But, you know, there were there were other people as well who are around on, on the earth, not just Noah and his, not just the eight souls. There were others that were around. But the point of this long suffering seems to be so that the ark could be finished and therefore the people could be saved. And while he, you know, if, he had, if the flood had come earlier, Noah would have been wiped out. And I think that's a... a I think if you use that as the comparison, that will dramatically change the way that this, you know, similar use pans out. Well, reverse the fact set, though. What what would have happened if 10 more people had repented under Noah's teaching? Could they have possibly joined him on the ark? Was there room on the ark for 10 more people? Sure, there was room on the ten- ark for ten more people. Right. Okay. Um, so, but that—that's not the point, though. That's not the reason <laughs> that God needed to wait. Well, he so, didn't need to wait in case maybe ten more people might show up, right? And that's so. That's, so the, the the exegetical point in in First uh, Peter three twenty is that the long suffering of God is with the disobedient. I don't know about that. It says while the ark was a preparing. It does say while the ark was a preparing. So, uh, so uh, that that uh, that I think that's an. Uh, maybe we just have to agree to disagree there. The the idea that God is just waiting for the ark to be built rather than I, I don't think long suffering would be the right concept to to apply there or the patience. I mean it was God's plan. God gave Noah the 
the blueprints. I mean, yeah, but he tolerated people living and continuing to live during this time period while the ark was being built. He could have brought the flood. He would the flood. You know, the people deserved to be wiped out from the beginning. As soon as he saw that their you know thoughts were only evil continuously, he could have wiped them out right then. But if he had done so, if he had brought a global flood right then, Noah and his family also would have been wiped out, and the whole human race would have ended. So, but at least in that sense, can't we agree that God was patient with the wicked, in that? Um, he didn't wipe them out instantly. Maybe maybe his reason was to save Noah, but he didn't actually punish them the instant they sinned. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fair so, enough. So, Dan, so I guess the, so the, the theological point you're making from this text, though, that will relate to 2 Peter 3.9 is you're saying that God had a genuine desire to save more than Noah and his family, but they yeah. just refused to cooperate. Yes, that's okay. right. Right, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, like his spirit, his spirit was striving with man. Um, right, but it wasn't. But he wasn't going to strive with them forever. Okay. 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 Uh, so let's see. Um, let's go ahead on into um, so. Verse verse eight is all is a tough is a tough one, but for other reasons, right? But beloved, uh, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Um, we don't need to debate Einstein's theory of relativity here, <laughs> but it's an interesting interesting idea. Um, I just think the idea here that Peter is getting across is. Um, when you look at the span of a human lifetime, you know, God's plan might have this overarching narrative that, you know, we just might not see everything that's going on with, with God's plan. And don't take that as a reason to um, scoff at God and say, oh, you know, he's asleep at the wheel or that sort of thing. I, I think God just looks at time differently than we do. Um, and he's probably just making that general point. Um, we, are we, we good there? I think it's more than that. I think it's a quote, essentially a quotation or allusion to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says, "Be uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, you children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past and as a watch in the night. You carry them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They're at grass, which grows up in the morning. It flourishes and grows in the evening. It's cut down and withers for we are consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are troubled and so on and so forth. So it's, I think it's, I think it's more than just uh, the fact that that time is kind of insignificant to God. It's also that uh, the, the judgment motif from, from Psalm 90 that it was there. Good point. I don't disagree. Okay, so I think we're to the to the meat. So um, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, uh, but that all should come to repentance. So here's the first argument I would make for an Arminian reading and against um, the Calvinist reading, I guess you advanced early on. And that would be, um, you know, is this um, 
not willing that any, is this any, should that be restricted to the us, the us word, or is this a general um, reading in a general sense of any? And I think we should ask ourselves that question. Is, is this a, like a general, like a gnomic principle, this, this kind of rule that's being applied to this specific context, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Is that a general rule and principle, which is being applied to this specific case? Or is it something that is completely bound to this specific case? I think that's the first question we have to ask ourselves. Um, and what I've seen uh, a lot of Calvinist commentaries do and that sort of thing is ask themselves, well, who is this any? But I think you need to ask that question first. Is this a general principle? You, I think you should ask that question first before you ask yourself, who is this any? Um, because once you once you ask, is this a general principle, you can look at it in the sense of, well, what's this passage about? It's about the destruction of the whole world, not just the elect. And I think it I think it just makes more sense. And then you end up with what I would frankly think is just a very natural reading. So if you look at this as a general principle now, grammatically, I was going to point out um, um, Mark chapter 11. Um, Mark 11, 2 and 3, it says, Go to the villages ahead of you and just enter into it, and you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll uh, send it back here shortly. Right? So, the you know, if anyone asks you, um, I don't think the first question you ask is, well, who is that any? Right? <laughs> It's just general. Anyone that asks, um, you know, you say that the Lord needs this cult. But you, you don't go trying to, you don't go back into the inbound context and try to limit down or define who that any is. It's just a general principle. Um, so I think that's the grammatical point I'm trying to make is that it's not necessarily the case that we should be looking for some type of antecedent to this any. We should first check to see is it a general principle, and does that fit the context? So that's my first argument, I guess. Yeah, I can I can respond to. So, I guess, you know, I think the larger context demands that you first settle the instead of looking for the general principle is. Peter have two audiences in mind or not audiences, but so it seems like the context demands that in first one, he says he's writing to the beloved and then he's talking about this other group, the scoffers. And he clearly changes the person of his verbs. And that comes out in the English, right? Beloved. And then it switches to they, and this is where the King James, some people, it's, it's interesting, right? The King James translators who may have known how to bring out, you know, tenses and number and person and pronouns better than we can chose to say us word, right? And for most English speakers, that's like, what is that about? Why does it say 
us word. Well, I think the King James translators are bringing out that idea that who's he long-suffering toward? The audience that Peter's writing to who are experiencing the scoffers saying this to them, and the point is God is gathering in his people and that's, and I think this was Turton was kind of getting at with the Noah example, right? That we brought up like the same thing that was going on at the time of Noah, where God has his plan that he's carrying out to save those from the coming destruction, which will happen because it's a promise toward us, the elect. Um, and then versus they, the scoffers. So in other words, why doesn't the text read, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward them, namely the scoffers, not winning that, not willing that any of the scoffers should perish. You know, because I, I don't know, Dan, if that's your reading of Second Peter 3, 9, in terms of, well, this is a reference to the scoffers, that God is striving with them and the reason why he's not bringing judgment is because he wants the scoffers to come. And I think, Turin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that we're saying that that can't be the... That's not what Peter's getting at. He's writing to the beloved ones. He's not talking about the scoffers. I don't know if I'm being clear, but that's kind of where I'm... Well, let me push back a little. Bit. Um, so I think that your point about who Peter is writing two is fair enough but what he's talking it's it's one thing like i'm talking to you but i'm talking about second peter well peter was talking to the church but he was talking about the end of the world right and i think i think it's that um that that switch that that's causing a bit of of a, a, a difference here the us word, and it's a, by the way, it's a variant. So like in the uh, ESV, it's, it's you rather than us. Um, so there's a variant between the underlying Greek manuscripts, right? The, um, King, King James being based on the Texas Receptus and, um, you know, the ESV on NAS 28 or whatever. Um, so long story, to, but it, it doesn't seem to make much difference, us or you. But the us or you, I don't have a big problem with saying the us or you is the church, and that does seem to follow the flow of the context reasonably well. Um, but where I do, I don't think that that, that decides the point at all, because the, the question is, well, not who is he talking to, but what is he talking about? And he's talking about the end of the world that's coming. So I guess I, I guess I would put it that way. And that, yeah. so anyways, um, um, Turton fan, do you want to weigh on, on this specific argument? This, the, the, basically, again, just to rephrase it, is the not willing that any should perish, but all that, should, but all should come to repentance. Is this a general rule that's being applied to this specific case or is it, um, should we be searching for the antecedent to any and restrict it to the us? I, I think we we should first check to see it. You know, is this a general rule? Does that fit, fit the context? Um, so, I guess any thoughts on on that argument? I'm not sure 
that the, the question of whether this is a general principle necessarily resolves it, unless what you're what you're kind of putting on top of that is that this is a general principle and that in the general principle the any or all is all mankind as a st as distinct from any all the elect right so it may be that that the author that peter is writing this as the general principle is that god wants to save all, uh, all is not willing that any of the elect will perish but that all of the elect will be uh, brought to salvation and he's applying that general principle to this specific case but uh, i think that you're I, I think that's one way of looking at it as a general principle, and I think that another way of looking at it would be on a, a more narrow principle. Between those two, I guess, in a sense, it's the, the broader principle, but the point is that the we still need to know, whichever that is, whether any and all there should be interpreted uh, broadly of, you know, the son of perdition, to include the son of perdition, uh, or whether that's intended to well, you know, include only the the people God intends to save. Well, let's. So, if you look at it from just a an analogy of faith sort of standpoint, you know, Peter would have had the Old Testament, of course, and known Ezekiel and those similar passages that say, you know, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the you know sinner turn from his sins and live. Um, I would think that there, I, at least there, I very rarely hear arguments that, oh, that just only means the elect, just probably because the context of Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 3 and 33 are so different. But um, that is a repeated principle that um, Peter certainly would have been highly aware of. Um, so just from, a, just from a comparing Scripture to Scripture standpoint, um, that's well within... Um, the analogy of faith, so to speak. Well, I've always understood Ezekiel 18 to be more referring to the people were arguing, you know, the proverb, our fathers ate sour grapes, our teeth are set on edge. That what's, what's being said there is um, God is not, Desiring the death of the wicked is a reference to the people saying God is judging us simply for the sins of our fathers, and that's why he desires our death, right? right. And the principle is, um, and Turton, I don't know if you, I mean, I think this is the Calvinist, because Ezekiel 18 is quoted a lot in saying, well, this is a, like a clobber text for the principle that God doesn't desire the death, like he's striving to save everyone. I think what that passage is simply saying is God is re rebuking the people for claiming the only reason why they're perishing is because of their father's sin. And God's saying, no, I don't desire the death of the wicked in the sense of I don't desire to punish you and bring judgment because of your father's sin. It's because of your personal sin. Like that's kind of the framework I put over Ezekiel 18 instead of saying, well, this is just simply saying that God wants them all to be saved and they're by their free will, they are frustrating God's intentions. And I'm, that, I'm also curious about one other thing, uh, just 
I don't know, to pile on. I'm curious why the, uh, I mean, I, I definitely agree with your point that there is a textual variant here and that the King James Version is following uh, what appears to be, if I'm not mistaken, the minority reading, not the majority reading. And that, you know, that that's the reason why you is in things like the ESV is because the uh, the majority, that is the majority reading is toward you. I don't see how that actually helps the, or really meaningfully changes the the argument. In, in either case, I, I think that you know, if you do, if you take the way that the ESV writes it, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. I mean, that only makes it less that like the us could include the non-elect. So I, I agree. It, it, for starters, the variance, I, I don't think the variant changes the sense of the, the overall passage in either way. Whether it's you or us, I'm happy to grant that it's talking to the church that Peter is writing to. I just think the, the difference between, okay, he's writing to the church, but what is he writing to them about? Right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't restrict the topic to the church. We should just restrict the audience to the church. Um, so... The- so the, there's a second variant. I don't know if you noticed this, but the more uh, more interesting variant, I guess, is dia instead of ice, right. which would be uh, on your account, impatient on your account. Right. Yeah. Um, I had read a couple commentaries talking about that, and they thought that it was less likely to be original, but I am not prepared to uh, to to uh, argue that to the my reason for raising it is not just to argue for that being the original but my argument my reason for raising it is isn't that I, I don't know when you start saying audience versus something else on on you to you you know his long suffering to you or his long suffering on your on your account to me they mean the same thing and I'm wondering if you were if you would say that they do mean something different. No. In other words, I, I, for me, this textual variant is, isn't meaningful, even though it might be of you know interesting, but it's not meaningful because the meaning yeah. is the same. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think the, the variant is, uh, impacts it massively in any direction. I, I don't think it's highly relevant to our point of contention. I, I think our point of contention is, is the second half of this verse, just a general principle that's being applied to this specific situation, or is this the second clause, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, restricted to the us? Um, I think that's the I think that's the point of contention. So, with that said, just to, to move things along, I'll get to um, my second argument, I suppose. Um, so, my second argument, I'll call the um, Notre Dame on fire argument. And you guys probably remember seeing pictures of Notre Dame and the church burning up, right? Um, yes. So this is Peter basically saying, turn or burn, right? He, instead of perishing, these folks need to come to repentance, right? So to me, I think the Calvinist reading is in a, a bit of a, um, on the horns of a dilemma, um, because either there's this universal salvic will or perseverance of the saints seems to be in jeopardy. And the reason why I say that is, it doesn't make sense to me if Peter's audience 
is the church, and specifically genuine believers, um, that he should be worried that they're going to perish and that they need to repent. Presumably they've already repented and that God has already saved them and they're not going to perish and they shall never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of his father's hand. So I think also along these same lines, what I see is a bit of a, and don't please don't take this the wrong way, but it, it seems like a three-card haunty to me because, you know, under one shell, you've got the elect. Then on another shell, you've got the professing church. And then under a third shell, you have true believers. And they're similar, but they're not the same. And if you look closely at Peter's context, he's talking to the, the church, the visible church. He's not actually talking about the elect as such. He certainly doesn't, he's not addressing this letter to future generations of elect people that haven't yet come to faith and haven't even been born yet. He's not, that, that's not the us. Um, the us is, is, you know, it's, it's the actual church. And, and I'm afraid what happens is to get around this idea of, well, they shall never, you know, um, they need to repent. We're going to see this shifting of Peter's actual audience and those good exegetical arguments you made that the us or the you is the church to future generations of elect to try, try to get around this idea that they're perishing. And so that's why I say it's a, the Notre Dame on fire, because you actually have the, the church being destroyed. This, this, I think the solution might fall back on the, the point that we, that I raised earlier when it came to the comparison with the ark. What, ha, what would have happened had the flood come 60 years into the ark construction as opposed to 120 years into the ark construction? And the answer is that Noah would have been in serious trouble because his ark's not built and the flood hasn't come. And the same problem would occur if God brought the end of the world before uh before he, in time, brought people to salvation. So if, if the world were uh, uh, ended early, the, uh, the elect wouldn't all be saved. And the, there's, there's a couple of, of parallel passages that I think uh, provide this. I think that the clearest, one of the clearest might be a parable, which I guess doesn't make it that clear, but Matthew 13, 24 to 30 Another parable put he forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence can, has it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then, excuse me, Wilt thou then go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you're gathering the tares, you also root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow up until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will save the reapers. Gather together first the tares, bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And it, it's that sense in which uh, the, the God's long-suffering, his withholding judgment, is for the benefit of the church, and, and at, considered as the elect, you know, not necessarily considered as already believing, but considered as the elect. And that idea that of election isn't foreign to Second Peter, 
he starts talking about election in the first chapter, if I recall. He says, you know, make, sure, make your calling an election sure. So it's not, uh, that's not foreign to second, uh, or to second Peter. And again, this, this, it fits then very well with the approach of, uh, the way in which there was long suffering of God for, in the case of Noah, waiting for him to finish building the ark. And then, uh, it also makes sense of, uh, this, the second verse, uh, Account the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. Uh, that it also makes sense of that at the same time. Okay, well, let me take that piece by piece. So, just to make sure I understood your the, the parable that the tears in the wheat, and I apologize um, if I, I missed the point. So when we talk about tares among the wheat, inside the church that Peter was preaching to, most likely there were true believers and not true believers, right? There were there were fakers. There were tares among the wheat. Is is that where you're going with this? Or, or are you taking the the yeah? Is it because I don't see how that helps you? Because so, so let's say that you know that there that there's all this group that has profess faith in Christ, but some of them are true believers and some of them are fakers, that doesn't help you at all. You can't have any reprobates in the group that God is wants to come to repentance. Otherwise, you've got a universal salvific will. I, I maybe, let me, I'm not sure where, where we came to this. It, I'm starting to hear a bunch of different things, and I want to make sure we're clear about a couple of things first. So, this is the second Peter is written to those who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So they, these it's written to believers. That's the the recipients of the this Catholic epistle. Uh, that in terms of who's the recipient of the letter, that's that's the recipient of the letter. In terms of who he's talking about. And the reason for the delay in Christ's coming, the reason is that he's waiting to bring in all of the all of the elect. So where do you get the shift? And I know it's subtle, but where do you get the shift from believers to the elect, especially elect that haven't yet come to repentance? Um, let me see. I mean, because to, to me, you made some good exegetical arguments that the us should be the believers, but then now your your follow-on argument seems to slightly move away from it because believers and elect aren't exactly the same, especially elect that haven't come to repentance. I uh, I suppose that it is uh, a matter of the shift from you know, specifically saying you or us to any and all, right? The, that, that's, that's that, that broader, that broadening out shift that, that you see there. So it's not just not, uh, it's not specifically that it was, that it was delayed so that the first century readers of the text would be saved, but, but that, that all the elect would be saved. 
But if you're saying where does the idea of God having an elect come from? I mean, in terms of Second Peter, that's introduced earlier on in the uh, in the text in in Second Peter one, if I recall correctly. Well, okay. So for starters, we can agree that the second half of the verse, not willing that any should perish and all should come to repentance, is a broadening out. It's broader than the us. It has to be broader than it. Well, not it doesn't have to be, but in this case, I think that we have good reason to think it is broader than the us, but. That goes against your previous argument. So all the, the, the arguments that, well, the us is the, the believers, the us is the church, they're the beloved. I think, I mean, you, you've just admitted that, that, that the second half of the verse is broader than that. It's broader than the first century readers of the epistle. Right. If, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's nothing specifically about the elect in the second half of the first. And then with the analogy of faith, you know, from Ezekiel, we can definitely see that, you know, um, God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins um, and not perish. So um, let's see. Um, actually, so David, do you want to take on the, uh, the Notre Dame burning argument? Here? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, this is, as you guys were talking, this is where I think Jude actually becomes important. Okay. Because if you look at the, so, you know, Peter kind of just mentions the scoffers and talks about how they're just questioning why hasn't the Lord returned yet, right? But Jude has many more descriptions for the scoffers. So Jude one three, it's the same kind of thing, right? He's writing to the beloved, beloved. Um, I want to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once delivered. So clear, just like in Second Peter, right? There's a clear audience, the the recipients of the letter, right? You, those who he says are clearly saved. But then he switches Jude one four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Interesting. Uh, Calvinists go to that. To that's a reprobation text uh, designated for this condemnation beforehand, marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace, and then he just and then he goes on and on about. He he adds more now. He he gives more historical Old Testament references. Right, verse five. You have Egypt, and you have Jesus saved a people. Interesting textual variant. Right, that was added to the new edition of the Nestle Allen. Uh, Jesus is in one of the ancient manuscript, not just curios. Uh, um, and afterwards destroys those who did not believe. And then, and then he, it goes on about Sodom and Gomorrah. So, you know, it, he's piling on the same thing with Noah and the ark, right? You have God saving his people, rescuing them from this other group of people who are designated for judgment. And then what I just noticed, and I don't think I ever noticed this before, and then the, the language is parallel, right? Um, Jude one seventeen. Um, so this is a comfort for the recipients of the letter, Jude one seventeen. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So I guess, and I'm kind of just forming this right now as I'm looking at this. 
isn't it possible that or Dan let me I'll, I guess I'll get it this way would you say Peter in second Peter 3 the us right is he referring to these people here who he's piling on quite a bit of terminology that seems like they are in a state of judgment or I mean they're pretty wicked they're pretty they're described as pretty wicked right so I would say that they're parallel to the some men who are more specifically to the scoffers yeah right. those are the scoffers yeah so I guess you know so I just want to point that out but I guess the general principle is and I mentioned this at the beginning my my struggle with whatever you want to call it synergism i guess is the most broad term rather than just arminianism the idea that god can be striving with sinners but can be frustrated in the accomplishment of his will to save them because the sinner is not cooperating so therefore, what Second Peter three nine means is God really, and I'm going to say this in a way that's kind of muddying the waters, but this is God's right now as we're sitting here recording this wants to save all seven billion people on planet Earth right now. His desire is to save them all, but He can't actually accomplish that desire of His unless we, unless some of those 7 billion, apart from an act of his grace that's unilateral, they have to cooperate, and then they get saved. So I guess that my the burning Notre Dame argument would be God is helplessly standing outside Notre Dame saying, I want you to not perish in the Notre Dame burning down, but in order for me to do that, you have to get yourself out. Like, I'm not going to come in and get you, but I know you well enough, Dan, like, this is where, like, your view versus provisionism is helpful. It sharpens it a little bit, right? Because I think you would say that, well, God's going to do something to help get them out. It's not pure, you know, Pelagianism. Sure. But, right? So, I mean, I guess that's wrong. So, I mean, so, so this is what happens in these debates, too, right? Like, you're pushing for us to be consistent, pushing our system all the way through, right? And then I, this is my always thing. Well, let's push the synergistic system all the way through. Are we really saying that Second Peter three nine means that God is the eternally frustrated deity who can't accomplish His own will and desire, right? And I would push back on that same point, maybe uh, with a little different angle, which is if you're you, you seem very quick to jump to. Dan, that is, you seem very quick to jump to Ezekiel's commentary on God not willing the destruction of the wicked, but the repentance. But then it, that, although that's a true statement uh, and it has a, a meaning that can be understood, I don't. It doesn't seem particularly relevant to this passage because the very next phrase after that all should come to repentance is, "But the day of the Lord will come." It's not that God is going to be indefinitely 
patient with people, nor was he in the case of the flood. He didn't wait. He only waited 120 years. He didn't wait indefinitely until people might come or might not come. And in the meantime, people, uh, in the time that the Lord has tarried since the since Christ's uh, resurrection, many people have died and faced judgment. And, and God didn't preserve their life uh, continually uh, throughout that time so that they have additional chances to be saved or additional opportunities to be saved. And you might be able to come up with an explanation, uh, you know, a speculative explanation that uh, God, you know, will bring the final judgment once every last opportunity where someone could have hypothetically believed uh, has passed. But a much simpler and easier way of explaining this is to focus this instead on on the elect. And it, once you focus it on the elect, the I, the idea that once all the elect are saved, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, that makes a lot more sense. Now, God, the, God not willing that any of the elect should perish will actually save them, as opposed to not willing that they will, that any will perish. Nevertheless, he's still going to come and wipe out the world and people will perish. It's kind of, it creates this weird, uh, the, the alternative to a Calvinistic understanding of this creates a weird uh, conflict in God, where he has two conflicting desires. He doesn't want anyone to perish, and yet he's going to come, like a thief in the night, and everything's going to be burned up. Yeah. Um, okay, so there, there is a lot of content there, so I'll, I'll do my best to uh, uh, respond as quickly as I can. So, for starters, an exegetical point, the long, um, the willing, not willing, that's a present participle, and that means it's it's the timing time frame of this willing is tied to the, the main verb. So as God is being long suffering, He's willing that they should not perish. Um, but in some sense, that that changes when the long suffering ends. So does the willingness that they should not perish, um, because time will come to an end, and and God is going to destroy the world and, and cast the wicked into hell. So in in some sense, that's that's true. Now. Um, Going back to the will of God argument, David, that you brought up, because I think that's really important. I think I can probably give you a couple different ways of looking at it. It might be different. Um, so, you know, you, you have kids. Yeah, I, I do too. So let's say discipline in our kids. We might not want to discipline our kids, but we'll do it anyways. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but we do have this kind of desire not to, to discipline them. I might want a sandwich right now, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sticking this through, right? You know, like th th that's kind of common for us as people. And so the question is, well, could that possibly be the case with God? Does he have this general desire that's different than his eternal decree? Right. And, the way I look at that in terms of God's will is when God wants himself to do something, no one can stop him because he's God. Because in, in his action of performing that, he's going to apply his omnipotence and then nothing can stop him. Right. So that's when God wants himself to do something. But if he wants us to do something, and assuming we have libertarian free will, then it may not always happen. And I think that I would also use a, a U2 type of argument because... God hates sin, and sin happens, and whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, that's true, 
right? And so I think a lot of Calvinists do have to get into this whole two wills of God thing. <laughs> However they exegetically take um, 2 Peter 3, 9, there is that aspect. And I think that that two wills of God does apply to what Turtenfan was saying earlier in terms of, well, well, why is it that, you know, God eventually stops being patient. He eventually brings the flood. He eventually will bring the fire, right? Well, that's true, you know, and, and it's, there's a difference between that general desire, like my general desire for a sandwich or to not discipline my kids, um, and then my choice or volition or in God's place, his plan, his predestination, Right. Now, I'll bring a third point, which is a general point, but it's uh, getting a little bit back to this. What I see in Scripture, for better or for worse, is a shift in, when there's a shift in theological topic, sometimes there's a shift in language. And I would challenge you guys on this one, in that when we talk, when Scripture talks about the death of Christ, or it talks about his universal saving will, it does talk about it in the world, in terms of the world, all men, the whole world, um, especially those that believe, you know, uh, th those, those types of things. We see those expressions, these general broad statements, but we don't see those same statements when it comes to predestination. We don't see in scripture somewhere where it says God predestined the whole world to be glorified. We don't see, um, God has forgiven all men. You know, we, we don't see those types of statements. And I think it's, it's, it's just telling that, a, you know, this is Peter, but, you know, we've looked at the same thing under Paul and under John, that when those theological topics come up, there's universal type language. Whereas when it's something like, you know, you know, the resurrection to life, we don't see universal language. Why is that? Why is it that we, we pretty consistently see universal language under the general will of God and under the uh, who Christ died for, and we don't see that type of language when it comes to predestination? Hmm. Oh, uh, Turd and Finn, you're on mute. When you... Thanks for putting that out. When when you're looking at this, you raised a, a, a very important point when you pointed out that the uh, not willing that any should perish is a participle tied to a main verb, where the main verb is long-suffering. Is long-suffering is a, is a main verb. It's not like is is the verb and long-suffering is some adjective. It's, it's he, he patiences uh, uh, toward us. But that is the, the main verb is that long suffering, and the object of that main verb is is either you or us, depending on the the textual variant, right? Right. But not not the them or the uh, right. That's true. the The second half of the verb is broader than that first half, and explains why 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 that that is the case. Yes, that's true. And uh, I okay. The other question I have is, what about uh, you asked? Where do we get this, you know, predestination or election in here? And I, I failed to mention when you asked that about verse fifteen, where I think you had pointed out to me, and I hadn't noticed it before. I've been always been so focused on the fact that 
Peter is acknowledging Paul writing scripture, that he didn't think about which scripture he's talking about. But the place that Paul mentions long-suffering, the most uh, apparent place, would be Romans 9, 22, where God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Uh, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared unto glory. Doesn't it, the, uh, the Calvinistic view that this long-suffering uh, is salvation to the elect, even despite it being uh, you know, not beneficial to the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, at least not beneficial in a, uh, in a final sense? Um, yeah, I think he's, de- <laughs> I, I think that's a great point. Um, and he deals with it right here in verse 16, um, as are in all of his epistles speaking in them and some things which are hard to be understood. Uh, and please don't take this the wrong, <laughs> wrong way. <laughs> please don't take this the wrong way, which they, which are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the un- other scriptures unto their own destruction. Yeah, um, there is a good chance that the proto-Gnostics, don't get, don't get this twisted, the Gnostics weren't around yet, Manny wasn't around yet, um, you know, Marcon wasn't around yet, but there were some early version of Gnostics that were around, likely seized on Romans chapter 9, and Peter is setting them straight. I agree with you that, that, that this reference to the long-suffering that, that we find in Paul um, is likely what he's talking about and that he thinks that Romans 9 was being misunderstood and um, some people went down bad road with Romans chapter 9 um, and he's um, sort of course-correcting a little bit. I'm sure, hmm. you, I'm sure that wasn't what you wanted to, to hear, but that, <laughs> that's what I think is actually happening. If you asked me to prove it, it would be really hard. But like you said, it's the same word. It's the same concept. Um, it's, there's a good chance that, yeah, that, that, uh, that Peter is um, course correcting to misunderstandings of Paul in Romans chapter 9. But how would Paul's doctrine in Romans 9 relate to Peter's doctrine in Second Peter 3.9. Because some people might have taken Romans chapter 9 to think that um, God um, is willing that some perish and that not all come to repentance, namely the vessels of wrath. And he's, he's correcting them and saying, no, God wants is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I, I got I got one thing. Um, so this is the just broader theological issue, Dan, and this is th- this is where some of these debates. I'm curious about how you are a classical Arminian, and you know some some of the you know I hate to keep bringing up provisionists, but the, they're the ones I go back and forth with online all the time. So your reading of Second Peter three nine, you're not saying that God's simple desire to save all is enough 
to enable them to be saved, right? There has to be another action of God in time, namely provenient grace. Because because here's what I'm saying. Some will take 2 Peter 3, 9 to say, look, everyone is able by nature to respond, right? Because the simple fact that God wants someone to be saved means they must be able to respond to that desire of God. And I know you don't believe that, but see, this is where this distinction gets very sharpened to me because you're still having to admit there's a particularity. So God can have a desire for all to be saved, right? However, in order for them actually to be saved, God has to take a particular action, namely provenient grace, because they're all under total depravity, which I understand that you kind of agree with the Calvinist on total depravity, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. So I agree that, you know, man's nature, he cannot uh, reach to saving faith, you know, on his own, just based on nature and free will and that sort of thing. And that we do need God's grace. We're dependent on it. It's absolutely necessary without the Father drawing and that sort of thing. Um, So I agree uh, on that point. So this isn't... um, but I, I guess I would say it this way. So when you look at the Calvinistic doctrine of, of common grace, right? Um, you know, take, for example, like if you read, I, I've read like Hodge's Systematic Theology on Common Grace, and almost every passage in there are the same passages that I would point to for prevenient grace. And it's he, he's got a big, long list of the Bible teaching that God is working on unbelievers to get them ready um, for the gospel and that sort of thing. And the difference is God's intention. Not the action, but the intention. Is God working in the lives of, you know, for, for Hodge the reprobate to kind of turn up the flames of hell and make their damnation worse because he's, he's sharing parts of himself with them just to, so they're, you know, exposed to more of his nature, and then they can be more guilty later on? Or is his desire that they not perish, but that they come to repentance? And that that's, seems to be the difference between, um, you know, common grace and prevenient grace, for the most part, is, um, is the divine intent in those things. So, I guess... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the intent issue is... You're you're correct. I mean, the, the, what is God's intention? You know, from before the foundation of the world, and then just one more. You know, Ezekiel eighteen. Um, you know, it's Ezekiel eighteen. I just wondered because there, you know, there's a mystery to all this at the end of the day. So you know, you have the Ezekiel eighteen you brought up, but then Ezekiel eighteen twenty nine. The conclusion is, and I would encourage those who catch this podcast to read the entirety of Ezekiel 18, the whole chapter, and you'll see that the context is God's being called unjust because they're saying that he's punishing the sons for the sins of their fathers, and he's not. But yet the house of Israel says, Ezekiel 18, 29, the way of the Lord is not just, O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent, and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Okay, so there, there's the command, right? 
to the individuals. Repent, turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. So, so, so as a Calvinist, I could look at Second Peter three nine too, right? Like, let's say for sake of argument, God is desiring the repentance of all without exception, right? Well, the next verse, eighteen thirty one, cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and new spirit. Whoa, whoa. So, and this is where I think, well, Ezekiel also says, I will give them a new heart and I will put my spirit in them and they will respond to this call, right? So I think at the end of the day, and, you know, this is where, I don't know, maybe this is just the thing of mine that as I've got onto the online debating thing, the reason why I can fellowship with and do ministry with a classical Arminian versus other forms of synergism is because we would both agree that when this call goes out, right, that Ezekiel has here, and I assume that you would say Peter is saying too in Second Peter 3, 9, repent, right? That's the call. Repent. We all agree that God must do something first in order for that call to be heeded. Right. And I and I guess, and this goes full circle back to Noah, I think that the period of revelation between the Cain and Abel, the fall of Adam and Eve and Noah, is teaching us that apart from an act of God's grace, namely election, he chose Noah and his family, no one will respond to that call. And now as I look at Jude in a fresh way after I'm talking to you guys, and I see that it seems to me like Peter and Jude are really making it clear that the Christians that he's speaking to need to understand that they need to stay faithful to God and do what God's called them to do. And these others, the they, the them, the scoffers, unless God does a work, they're going to continue in their scoffing. And I think we all agree on that, right? The there's got to be an act of grace. Call it provenient grace. Call it common grace. Call it whatever you want to call it. We would just say it's an effective grace, right? Um, I'm kind of rambling, but I, I just I always want to bring this back to the ecumenical point, which I know this is I, this is why I like your guys' program too, because it's you can disconcur, but but end up agreeing on a lot of different things too. Sure. You know, bring it back to Dan. Even if you disconcur with the Calvinist version of second peter 3 9 that the you and us word is talking about the elect we all agree that simply god stating that he desires repentance from all doesn't mean that the ball is left in the court of the sinner without an act of god's grace having to first happen yeah which absolutely. is I, as i as which as i go back and forth with provisionist the provisionist says no i take it further you no action of God's grace is needed internally for someone to turn, right? It's only just the proclamation of the word. So, I mean, I'll stop. I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but I'm, I think no, I'm, I'm making... I'm, I'm with you. I agree. It's, it is very important that we see ourselves as depraved and needing God's grace, and without God's grace, we can't pull ourselves up our own bootstraps and yeah. know, bring ourselves to saving faith in Christ, and that he's got to come to us, and he takes the initiative. And I... Yeah, I think that I think those are all very important things. Um, so I had maybe on my slide I had two more exegetical points to make. Oh. I'm sorry to interrupt. I still have a question. 
Okay. Maybe a point of clarification. I don't understand. I do understand that Second Peter is making reference to people who have erroneous views, for sure, and that these people misinterpret Paul as well. Uh, but my, what I'm not clear about is it seems like you're saying, if I, if I heard you right, that the clarification about Paul in Romans 9 is to, to refer to not willing that any should perish is an is a uh, is a corrective to an, an interpretation of let's say God willing to show His wrath. Uh, that 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 that's a cor- somehow a corrective to an understanding of willing to show His wrath. On the other hand, within the sentence in verse fifteen, the sentence says, "And consider that the patience of our Lord." is salvation, even as Paul has written unto you. That's the part I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the, setting aside the question of whether they're proto-gnostics or proto-whatever they are, uh, I, don't, I don't see, I'm not seeing how the puzzle pieces fit together in that interpretation. It seems to me like, like Paul, the, the interpretation that Peter is giving of Paul here is that Paul is saying, that in ver- in 9:22 and 23 he says what if god willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory in that case uh, i would it seems as though peter is saying consider this long suffering in 22 as connected not only to god being patient with the vessels of wrath but also with God's intent to make known his riches of glory on the vessels of mercy. So, okay. So in, in uh, second Peter, he's talking about that long suffering is salvation. Now on a certain reading of Romans chapter nine, which I think is an erroneous reading that he's correcting that this long suffering is on people that cannot possibly be saved that they have been eternally reprobated or that sort of thing. And the so is the long-suffering salvation or not? So when we look at, if we, if we, if we put a, um, a reprobation reading onto um, Romans 9, uh, when it talks about this long-suffering, um, what if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? Um, so if they're the reprobate, it doesn't make sense that God would be long suffering with them, leading them to salvation. Um, because they're reprobate, his plan was never to save them. So that's a mistaken reading. And the way we should understand that this long suffering, um, is that is God is being patient with these people, um, to give them an opportunity to repent. Um, and, you know, we see that in Romans chapter 11, when the hardening of Israel reverses and then they, they come back. Um, we also see that in Isaiah 29, when God blinds the uh, Israelites and then he reverses the blindness and they return to him. So they're not reprobated, they're hardened. 
And the, you know, I think uh, Peter is, is setting that straight. But here's, here's the fundamental question, just to, 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 to break it down into a nutshell. In what sense is the long-suffering salvation for the reprobate? It isn't for the reprobate, but, and, and, that's, and that is critical to it. It's, that's why I said in, uh, he's applying the long-suffering in 22 also to the part of, of 23. In other words, long-suffering is both in order to, uh, for the, both in terms of the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, but also for showing mercy to the vessels of mercy. Uh, that and that's my, I guess my concern is if you change it into talking about the reprobate or talking about the people who event who never eventually believe, the long suffering of our Lord isn't salvation for them in in the usual sense of the word because they aren't saved. But you say you seem to be saying it's the opportunity for salvation. And if I'm paraphrasing you right, then you're cha- you're kind of changing 15 into saying, and, and consider the long suffering of our Lord is an opportunity for salvation. Of course, as yeah. opposed, yeah. yeah, that's what, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, here, let's see, take uh, Romans two, um, Romans two. And, what, what, and what, while you're looking it up, Dan, I just have to say, uh, I have never connected Second Peter three, fifteen to Romans nine, in my life, and I've. <laughs> read this text many many times I, I that's you know and and just so you know i always took what paul's referring to there or peter's referring to there is is more antinomianism okay so um, that's why i wouldn't even see a connection to romans 9 because i dan in your interpretation of romans 9 the the people the object the people paul's dealing with in romans 9 are jews who think they're entitled to salvation by their works right they're they're not they you would never describe what paul's doing in romans 9 as people who say oh i'm saved by being lawless in god's grace you know like (laughs) those people are legal they're legalistic they're saying i'm jewish and i keep the law why are these gentiles coming into the covenant Right. I think right. The, the reason why uh, some commentators draw the connection is, is because the word long-suffering in the Greek is the same form and the, the same exact word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9. Um, but to, yeah. to, 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 to answer your question, so, you know, oh, uh, or despises thou the richness and goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's the sense in which I'm taking it. Um in all three of these texts, that the long suffering, it's just like it is with Noah, you know, it's giving people a chance, a time to repent. Now, you could argue that he's given them time to repent, but not the ability to repent. And then we could have a theological discussion on that point. And that's, that's certainly a discussion I'm willing to have. But, um, but I think that's the general sense that I'm taking it. Um, now, just to be respectful of your time, I mean, both of you guys, um, I did have two other quick points in, um, from my side, but I'm happy to keep going with this, and I can keep going um, later, but I know um, others have appointments and things like that to make. So, um, Well, I'm I'm still stuck on this, just this general idea, like even Romans 2, 4, so, yeah. and, and, and you kind of went where I would because that is the discussion, right? Like just because God has a desire 
for people to come to repentance doesn't mean that they're going to actually come to repentance. There has to be like something has to happen in time for them to be converted. And, you know, this is where I think that, so like, for example, I'm, I'm going to do some reviews on this, what's referred to as uh, the dynamic view of God kind of thing. Right. And I mean, I guess Dan, it, it was mentioned earlier on, like at the end of the day, whatever God's intention is, he knows with perfect foreknowledge that can't be falsified who will not reach repentance. Right. Yes. So, Practically speaking, unless you're an open theist, don't we all agree that God knows who the elect will be? And from his point of view, it's it's not a matter of God's up in heaven going, well, I hope everyone will be saved. I'm unsure of the outcome. We don't, none of us agree with that. I know you don't, you're not into open theism or dynamic omniscience kind of thing. I don't think you are. Right. I'm not, I'm, I'm a moment. But so, but, and, and when, because when this comes down at the end of the day, I mean, don't we all agree that salvation is of the Lord ultimately? And, and we're not saying that this is open to I, I'm I, this maybe has nothing to do with the topic, but this is just where I go practically because it, in, in my ministry at Teen Challenge, for example, like at the end of the day, we pray the same for salvation of people. Now, I as a Calvinist get accused of saying, well, you're a Calvinist. Why do you pray for people's salvation? Aren't they already eternally reprobated or not? And my response to that is always, if you believe in the foreknowledge of God that's absolute and set in stone, you praying for the lost is just as futile as me praying for the lost. Because if I say, oh, you Calvinist, you'll say to God, God, please save John Smith. God says back, well, he's reprobate. <laughs> but from your position, God, please save John Smith. God says back, I know John Smith will never repent and believe because I see, because I have that perfect foreknowledge. Right. And so, I mean, I get that's where we all come down into mystery level, right? Like at the end of the day, we're both in the same boat. Don't make the Calvinist the only one that has to answer this objection of kind of a theodicy type objection. Like, well, if the future is set in stone, why do you do anything? Right. right, right. Okay, that's that's fair. And everyone has to have a, a defense, if not a theodicy, on the problem of evil. That's not just a Calvinist thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the other hand, I will say this much. Let's say if libertarian free will doesn't exist, then it can't be between God and sin. So in some sense, I think, you know, if a determinist probably does have a little bit of a a bigger problem of evil, <laughs> but it doesn't ignore the fact that, you know, that libertarians or Arminians have to come up with their own answers and, and they, um, they have to be good. 
Um, so I would say the same thing on just, uh, just on this word long suffering, right? In some sense, if, if there's libertarian freedom, God is being long suffering with us and it's pretty easy to understand that. And then if, if determinism were true, then it seems like God is being long suffering with himself and he could just do it anytime he wants. Um, it's a little harder for me to understand long suffering in that context. And I'm not saying that you don't, you couldn't come up with an answer for that, but it just seems a little bit of a challenge. Um, so this whole idea that God is long suffering with us seems to me to, to indicate that God is, um, working with us as people rather than something where he completely wants to determine every aspect of that. Yeah, and I'm, you know, and I think that what I'm satisfied with as a Calvinist is just to say, well, of course, God has a what's the classical Calvinist distinction term? Fan, help me out. It's um, the revealed will of God and the secret will of God, or His will of command and His will of decree. So, of course, in God's will of command, all men everywhere are commanded to repent and believe. So, in that sense, God's long suffering, in the sense of that command, has gone forth to all. But this is where the total depravity issue, Dan, and I push back on you. But if total depravity is true, even in your case, if you believe in total depravity, God's long suffering is still, it's still like the same thing because God's still got to do something first to, you know, you're saying the long suffering means that God is that that means libertarian free will is true because God's long-suffering. But I'm saying, even on your position, libertarian free will doesn't exist totally because you do believe in total depravity. So there is a sense in which libertarian free will is hindered because of the fall. Yeah. So then we're back to the same thing. Is this provenient grace universal, or is it particular upon the presentation of the gospel, for example? Right, so... But going back to, the, you know, my spirit will not strive with man forever, right? It is his spirit that's striving with flesh, right? It's not it's not us. It's not our flesh pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. It is the spirit, but it's not forever. Um, so I guess it, I, I absolutely hold to prevenient grace, and I think, it's, I think it's very important. But that patience aspect is, you're right, it's both this general desire that God has to save people um, which leads him to give his spirit, um, which some people resist. Um, so, so hey, so hey, and Dan, as far yeah. as time, I do have to jump off. My wife just texted me and said it's been two hours. Okay, <laughs> so I always have because I do have an appointment. But I appreciate you guys changed the time for me, which which I, it was very gracious of you. Um, if I jump off, you guys can keep going, right? That won't mess up the recording. Yeah, it, we will be fine. Uh, but okay, cool. it, it was a great pleasure uh, getting a chance to chat with you, Dave. You're always welcome back. Uh, you know, it was uh, really good to dig into God's Word with you. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. Okie dokie. Um, so, uh, I guess. The final um, two points you had. The final two points. Okay. So the first one is um, tis, 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 uh, tisk, tisk. Okay. Tisk, 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 tisk. Uh, both. Okay. So let's say 
Um, okay, let's, so going back to the verse, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but, but as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In English, there's something that's slightly um, masked over, and it's that the sum, the, the sum and some men, oddly enough, is the same word as the any. The any that should uh, come, uh, that should not perish. And so, and I'm not saying that this is a good translation. That's not a good translation, but I'll just uh, put it this way so maybe it comes across in English. If we said, the Lord has not slack concerning his promise as any men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um it brings out the fact that those are the, the same word. The sum and the any are the same word. So the point I'm making with this is, let's say, for the sake of argument, that the us, the us or the us word that God is uh, being long-suffering with, um, if if we need, let, let, let's say that the not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance is, we need to look back at the preceding um, context of the preceding sentence and find what does that refer to, then if that was the case, the most likely reference would be the some men um, because it is the same word. In Greek, it is, they're both um, tis. Here, I'll pull that up. Uh, some men is tis. And then any is tis. So the argument is tis tis. So if we were to um, have to look back and try to try to restrict the any that God doesn't want to perish but come to repentance, then it would be the some men, which they're counting um, uh, God as slack a slacker uh, because he hasn't returned yet, or more specifically, it's the scoffers, or more specifically. These are unbelievers, not believers. They're not part of the church. They would probably be, um, there's a good chance that many of them are never going to believe. And God still doesn't want them to perish, and he wants them to come to repentance. So even if for the sake of argument we do go backwards and try to define the any, then the best way to do it would be to, to say that they're the scoffers. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy the argument. I, I think... I think that it's unnatural to assume that just because the same pronoun, it's a fairly widely, you know, fairly common word is used twice in the same sentence that it, it would necessarily refer to the same group, especially considering that the, uh, that the, the modifiers are, are different, but, I do find it very interesting if I, when I looked in Thayer's entry that's provided by the Blue Ladder Bible, I'm not sure whether that's really Thayer's or not, but the first entry, it talked about uh, used of persons and things concerning which the writer either cannot or will not speak more particularly. And that's that, that, uh, that what interested me about that was the, that's a good example of speaking generally, which I've talked to you about before in some other contexts. Uh, but we have kind of spoken past each other on that, I think. Yeah. Um, 
Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Very good. And that was that. That was one of the two, or that was both of the two. That that was one of the two. This this the last one, and I think we probably are just going to disagree on it. So in verse twelve, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord, it's this idea that we as Christians, as the church, are hastening the day of the Lord, making it come quicker, and. I, th- hmm. I think I noticed a little change in your words there. <laughs> hastening versus coming quick more quickly. Making it come more quickly versus. Well, to hasten it, make it come more quickly. I guess. Anyways, um, is that a? In, well, the okay. So let, let me just uh, finish up the point. So the idea, the way I understand this, is that as the church spreads the gospel around the world. I mean, that's one of the things that's going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. So in that sense, we're hastening the day of the Lord by spreading the gospel and telling people that they should uh, repent. And that seems to me to make it much more likely that this repentance is is intended for um, not the church, not the believers, but other people. So any, anyways... Um, I, but I suspect you probably would agree, and you would just say, well, yeah, just the elect ones, though. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? I I think that um, if, you, if you look at, like, the Strong's definition for the, the underlying Greek word, it's, it's kind of like awaiting eagerly. I, I don't think it's about accelerating the... The fun, when the last day will be, and I, but I do find that kind of the idea that you could somehow accelerate when the last day would be would be very would would really seem to only make sense on the idea that there's a certain number of elect and once all the elect are saved that's the end of the world. Uh, that 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 idea where things could be sped up would make sense, or where you know maybe everyone finally everyone is saved, absolutely you know kind of universal salvation occurs and somehow. There's no more appropriation at the same time. Uh, you know, that that kind of scenario. But anyway, I, I'm not sure it makes sense to debate that point about hasting. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I guess it interests. Yeah, that's what I... Um, okay, that, that that's fine. We can leave it that one at that. Um, so I guess that's... Let me just look through this real quick, just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Yeah, that's that's basically what I had on this passage. So, did you have any um, last arguments or closing thoughts you wanted to add here? My only other thought was I, I took a quick peek to try to see, you know, what was an early patristic commentary on Second Peter, and see what you know how, how it had been interpreted, and. The bottom line was, although it is cited very early on by a number of different authors, Athanasius seems to refer to it. The typically, it's the previous verse, the verse right before, like the one about the pig wallowing in its mud, in the mud. I think is the most one of the most colorful verses of the uh, of the book, and is one that gets referred to a lot. Uh, and I wonder if that previous, if we should have started our context back in that chapter where we talk about these people who are, you know, apostates and, and how that, how our understanding of this passage would look 
if we were thinking about it, framing it in terms of these apostate people, I don't know. Uh, I, I would kind of see it in the same way, in the sense that with with these apostate people, the fact that the you know that the judgment is being delayed does provide them with an opportunity, as you said, that provides them with this opportunity to come back. And instead of just treating, instead of becoming fatalists and just saying, well, whatever is, 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 and if I'm not one of the elect, then it's too bad, I'm not going to do anything. Instead, seize the day, repent, and don't be a fatalist. Uh, seize the day and repent and believe the gospel and you know, pursue the good works to which God has appointed us. So, I don't know, we probably wouldn't disagree about that point. But so, okay, so um, I've seen commentators link Justin Martyr's first apology, chapter 28, to this verse. If someone asked me to prove it, I don't know how I would go about doing that. But here's what he says. Um, so, and he would be sent into the fire with its host and men would follow him. We're talking about Satan. So Satan's going to go to hell. People are going to follow Satan to hell and would be punished with endless duration, as Christ foretold. For this reason, why God has delayed to do this is in regards for the human race. For he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance and even some that are perhaps not yet born. In the beginning, he made the human race with the power of thought and of choosing truth and doing right, so that all men are without excuse before God, and for they have been both born rational and contemplative. Um, uh, if anyone disbelieves that God cares for these things. Uh, well, anyways, uh, I could keep going, but the, 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 the phrase, um, the reason why God has delayed to do this is in regard for the human race. Some commentators have said he has... Um, 2 Peter 3.9 in view. I don't know if that's true or not true. Um, it could be. Um, it, it's fitting, and it fits my interpretation, so, you know, go Justin Martyr. <laughs> I feel like it fits my, interp my interpretation as well, interestingly enough. But perhaps, yeah. uh, as time is short, perhaps we can uh, either talk about that another time, or uh, we'll just let it be one of our uh, points of disconcurrence. Yeah. Um, I did have one other last point. Uh, I forgot to bring this out. Um, what is it? It's Wisdom Chapter 18. Um, here. Uh, do, you do you have two, two minutes or, or you got to run? Wisdom Chapter 18 and the King James Version. Yeah. Which verse? Uh, uh, let me f find it real quick. Okay. I had it. I blogged about it a hundred years ago. Um, uh -huh. here. Okay, here. All right, it is... Sirach. It's Sirach 18, 8 through 14. Um, so Sirach, yes. uh, or as it was called in the King James Version, Ecclesiasticus, right. and then uh, which verses? Um, Sirach 18, 8 through 14. Uh, I'll go ahead and just Who is read this it. man and where, where aren't you serves he? What is his good and what is his evil? The number of a man's days at the most are 100 years. This, this one? Yes, yeah. 
And as a drop of water in the sea, a gravel stone in comparison to the sand, and a thousand years are to uh, the days of eternity, uh, you know, seeming to be drawn from that same psalm we talked about before. Right. Therefore is God patient with them and power pours forth his mercy upon them. He saw and perceived their end to be evil. Therefore he multiplies compassion. The mercy of man is toward his neighbor, but the mercy of the Lord is upon all flesh. He reproves and nurtures and teaches and brings again as a shepherd his flock. He has mercy on them that receive discipline and that diligently seek after his judgments. Right. So I would obviously point to if if Peter is drawing language from here, which seems quite plausible, um, that here he's talking about God uh, having mercy on all flesh in verse 12, not just the elect. And uh, as as usual, we review we all flesh as meaning something different from one another. But I understand your your uh, your point about that. So you would take it as all elect flesh. I would take it as not just the Jews. I see. Okay, very good. Okay, that is the last point I had. Sorry, I forgot that one. All right. All righty. Well, thanks again. Uh, it's good talking with you as always. Um, God be with you. And with you.